pray, and we're going to read First uh, Peter four verses one through six this week. Between this week and last week, I I kind of want to harass Peter a little bit. I've I feel like I've gotten to know him a little bit better. For years, I've really gone to him to make fun of Paul, and uh, because in Second Peter three fifteen. Peter writes this beloved, um, our beloved brother, Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you as in all his letters, speaking them of these things in which some of these things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort. They also do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. I've been shaking my head going, man, Peter, you're one to call out Paul for writing some things that are difficult to understand. Last week, we talked about Jesus going down to hell and proclaiming his victory. If that wasn't difficult to understand, I don't know what is. And so, um, but with that, we're going to ask God for help as we uh, continue our journey through First Peter. Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We, uh, I thank you, Lord, uh, for this, this man, Peter, whom you used uh, by your spirit to to author a couple books of the Bible. We thank you, Lord, how you used him, how you've displayed his life, um, his successes, his failures. Um, Lord, that, that the, pit, the Bible paints this picture of him as just a man. There's one hero, and that's you in all of the scriptures. And so, Lord, we uh, thank you, Lord, uh, for his journey, this man who knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, loved Jesus so much. And with such intensity, Father, we ask that as we continue our way through uh, this small letter of First Peter, Lord, that you would, through your spirit, help us to understand what is being said. Lord, I pray that you would um, unclog our ears, that you would focus our minds upon you, that you would um, give us gentle hearts, sensitive hearts to, uh, to hear your words. Lord, it's a passage that might come off as hard. Um, and so, Lord, we pray that you would um, just move in our midst, Father, that we would ultimately come to know you more, that we would be convicted, that we would lean upon you, that you would help us, Lord, in our journey with you. And, Father, for those of you that are here that don't know you, Savior, I pray, Lord, that the gospel would be uh, made clear to them, uh, that they would... Uh, understand who you are. Father, we do love you. We praise you. And we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen. First Peter chapter four, verse one. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of their time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dis, uh, dissipation, and they malign you but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, 
they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. And Father, we do thank you. We praise you, Lord. We ask that you would help us now as we work through your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. I do want to start off with a warning. If you have not come to a place where you know Jesus as your Savior, it would be very easy to get lost in this passage, which I want to be very, very clear about. Bless you. This letter, Peter writes to those who have placed their life in the hands of Christ. They've responded to the gospel. Uh, The gospel is that Jesus, according to the scriptures, died on the cross as penalty for our sins, for all sins of humanity. He was buried and then he rose on the third day. He manifested himself to a number of people and then he ascended into heaven. The Bible says that after hearing that message, when you believe that you trust him about no works, nothing to do, You become a Christian, you're saved, you're indwelt with the Spirit, which we looked at last week, the baptism of the Spirit. This letter is written for those who have done that. There's there's a a call, a challenge, an exhortation um, for us who have trusted in Christ to run the race with Him. And so, if you're not a believer, don't... Get confused. This is not a call to earn merit with God. This is not a call for you to do good works so that you might be saved. This is really a letter that we, uh, that, to Christians, to those who place their faith in Christ, to challenge us to go the distance, to run. I, I do want to, um, as a caution, I didn't write it on. Every now and again, I, I come across passages like this. Normally on every page, I'll write smile. And it's a reminder to me not to be the Navy SEAL instructor going hard on everybody. But I love this passage in that it's Peter giving us a challenge as Christians to step up. We live in a world today where the church in a large portion, especially in the United States, is trying terribly hard to fit in with the culture around us, that we look the same, that we act the same, that we behave the same, sort of chameleon Christianity. And when we look at that sort of picture of Christianity and we compare it to what the scripture says, it's, it's not compatible. Um, throughout the New Testament, there's this charge that if you have trusted in Christ, if you're walking with Christ, if you begin to allow your brain to be transformed, to be renewed, the way we think is different from the world, and we end up becoming weirdos. There's no, I mean, we become weirdos. We're, we're trying to, in large part, we're trying to take Christianity and say, oh, I, we're just like you, we're just, and we are, we're, we we're all sinners. But the thing is, when our mind, it's, it's mind-altering, and we begin to think differently, and then friction comes. Look at verse 4, not to just skip ahead, 
But verse 4 says that all of this, they are surprised. The they is the world, the Gentile world apart from Christ. They are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dis- dissipation and they malign you. So it moves from surprise to maligning you. And in this is because you think differently than that you do, because you, you think differently than they do. And because you think differently than they do, you begin to act differently than they do. And as you act differently than they do, sometimes, a lot of times, they get convicted by God, and then they blame that conviction on you, and they want to stop whatever you're doing so that they don't feel convicted. And none of us like to be weirdos, right? Amen? Like, I don't want to be a weirdo. I resisted Christianity for many years because I didn't want to be a weirdo. Growing up as a kid, all I wanted to do was to fit in with the crowd. I didn't want to, 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 to be different. But the reality is we're all a bunch of weirdos. And, and the more that I come to, to see the text, the thing that matters is our, what does God think about us? And so we start with this very first word, the therefore, which I've, in your mind, if you see a therefore, if, if you're thinking images, I would almost change an arrow that goes up, like go back. Like what just was said? Why is the therefore there? What did we read up to this point that the therefore is written? So, so Peter here says, therefore, he's responding to the previous paragraph. If we go back to verse 18 of chapter three, we see for Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for gunner. Well, that's my insert. The just for the unjust. None of us deserved what Jesus did for us. The just, the one who is God, the one who is without sin, the perfect one. He died the gospel for us who are sinners so that he might bring us to God. This whole idea of relationship that there our sin creates this barrier with God. Jesus died and made the payment propitiation, which means satisfied. It's he satisfied the wrath of God that was due us for our sin. From this, he goes on. And he spoke of some very difficult things that that during this window between his death and his resurrection, he went to Hades, to hell, to proclaim not an offer for salvation, but to proclaim victory over death, to proclaim victory over sin and Satan. There's this great picture of the majesty of God in this last section that he went through so much on our behalf that he is above all things. He is sovereign. He is all powerful. He is almighty. Therefore, Peter's going to challenge us because of this truth of what Jesus did, who he is, and the future is coming. He's going to challenge us. On, on Tuesday, I had an opportunity to speak with some pastors. Um, we are connected to a, to a group of churches that are like-minded. Um, we are part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Ben sort of mentioned that this morning. I didn't tell him to. I'm like the most non-whatever, denominational guy. We're part of a convention that is um, our denomination. I grew up in the Catholic Church where the Catholic Church, there's a hierarchy. Everything trickles down. 
There's no hierarchy in the Southern Baptist Convention. We're a group of cooperating churches. Each church is independent, autonomous, but we, we, we partner with each other over certain things. And um, I was asked to speak to a group of seven pastors who are wanting to go through a restart process, that their churches are, are dying and decline. And I was asked if I would share the story about our church and the journey over the last seven years. It was, it was, I was thankful to be there. But in the group of the seven pastors, there were probably two that were actually interested. The rest were sort of <laughs> doing that number, um, which is a former Navy SEAL instructor. It's very difficult when somebody falls asleep on me. Like, I want to get buckets of water. I've actually, I think Debbie volunteered. She knows, a, you know, somebody that can mount them. Um, but I realized that half these guys didn't care about the health of their church. They were just sort of playing games with God. That, that they were just there for, you know, to make their easy money. They didn't, they, they didn't, had no intention of restarting their church, trying to bring health. And so when I read this passage, I, I don't come to church because I'm a pastor. I don't come to church because this is a job. I come to church even when I'm on vacation because I'm a Christian and I'm not playing games with God. Gunner's way was a total mess. My life was an absolute disaster, even though I was a success by world's, the world's standard. I was a total success, Navy SEAL, rock star on top of the world. But deep within me, I knew that my sin was horrible. And through a journey of a couple years, realizing that I was done playing games with God. I was done playing games, that I was all in. And I do believe that this whole passage is Peter pushing us in this direction. And so my prayer is that you are convicted. Conviction's not bad. Conviction is good. Conviction is the spirit of God within you, prompting you, moving you forcing you to think about your life. God wants us to think. He wants us to examine ourselves, examine our hearts. He doesn't convict us as Christians to condemnation. He convicts us to move closer to him. And so with this, therefore, because of what Christ has done, because Christ died for you, the the just for the unjust... Because all things are subjected to him, the scripture makes it very clear that the world is held together by him. Scientists for years have figured out that, that basically the second law of thermodynamics is things are moving from order to disorder, that things are slowly moving apart, and as they move apart, they decay, decay and they die. Like at the nuclear, or, or the, see this is, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> I'm a Navy SEAL by background, which is... Give me sticks and stones and I can, but at, but at the molecular level, things are like moving away at the, at the atom level. Do we call that atomic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think of atomic, I think of big explosions. Um, I'm way off track. But like everything we have, but, but the scripture makes it clear that it says that Jesus holds the world together, that, that, that this pressure holding us together, the reason that we're here, we have life, we have breath, you have whatever you have, everything. He is over everything. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, 
So he points back to this Christ while during his incarnation, as he came to earth, he says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, since he died in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. And this word arm, this is a, it's a military term. It's the idea of a, of a soldier jockeying up for, for, for battle, for putting on their armor, putting on their sword, getting ready to go into combat. And Peter uses this word to the church, arm yourselves, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. When I read words like this, I have flashbacks of, of my time in the SEAL teams for months on combat missions that, that, that if you, if there's a key word, if there was something that came over a speaker, we had this sort of phrase, an, an alert. It could happen at any time of the day. But that our platoon was mustered or called to basically get somewhere so that we could launch for a mission. I could have been up for days on end, just gone to sleep. And in my sleep, if I heard this phrase, I would jump up, throw on my flight suit, zip it up, grab my gloves, run to our gear storage area. I'd grab my first line gear. I'd put it on, get all my magazines with my bullets, clip it on, throw on my body armor, go through. The next step I would do is grab my radio throw on my radio, put my headset on, throw on my helmet, put on my primary weapon, my, my handgun. I would grab my primary weapon, my rifle. I would walk down to the flight deck. I would basically load a magazine, send a round forward. I'd press check everything. I'd get a radio check, and I'd be ready to go in minutes. Like today, if you guys want to play a joke on me, if you come to my house, if you found the saying, you could do this. And if my kit bag was there in my stupor, I would probably go and put everything on. And I imagine it would be a little bit more like the scene from the Mr. Incredibles, you know, the belt. It shrunk on me. Like, I don't know. Like I could do it in my sleep. It was just everything was preparing. It was so ingrained. And Peter tells us that we as Christians need to think this way. We need to arm ourselves as Christians. This isn't a passive game. Oh, I made a proclamation when I was four years old or then, and and I have my fire insurance. It's in my back pocket. I'm just going to go on, keep living how I always lived. There's warning in the Bible about this. Like I'm all for the assurance of salvation. I believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. But in our American culture, where everybody thinks they're a Christian because they're not something else, I think there's going to be a lot of Americans that show up and are going to be the people that Jesus said. There are many that claim that I was their Lord, and I said, I never knew you. I think that's Matthew 7 something or other. It's sobering. And this passage, I think, is to shake us, to wake us up. Now, we as Christians, this... this it's a verb. It's a, it's, it's, we're supposed to live. How are we to arm ourselves? If you turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Peter tells us the same thing, that we're to, to arm ourselves. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, and Paul at the end of his letter, it's interesting, to me, if you study Ephesians and you follow Acts, you'll see that Acts is set in, I mean, Acts, Ephesians, Ephesus, the story of Ephesians happens 
within Acts 19 with the uh, Demetrius, the silversmith, this great idol worship, all kinds of spiritual craziness was going on in their day on the both the good team and the bad team. And Paul writes to the churches that are found in Ephesus. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Notice this phrase, be strong in the Lord, be strong in the Lord. It happens like three or four times in this passage. Be strong in the Lord or stand firm. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God, armor yourselves so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, that there is a war happening around you. You're to stand firm. You're to arm yourself with the armor of God so that you can protect yourself against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness, in the heavy, heavenly places, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth. This picture of the truth in this age, what's true to you is true to you. What's true to me is true to me. <laughs> no, the truth is the truth. This is either a wood pulpit or it's not a wood pulpit. It's true to me. Mike Westerling can come up here and say, Gunnar, that's a plastic pulpit. No, well, that's your truth. My truth is it's a wood pulpit. Or I could say it's something else, a metal pulpit. Neither one of us are right as much as we say it's true to us. It is a wood pulpit. You can cut it in half later. Prove it. Say, no, no. I don't really believe in gravity. That's just something of your imagination. That's your truth. No, there are absolutes and two truths cannot be. The Bible makes great claims. It's not up to us to defend the Bible. The Bible will defend itself. The Bible is truth. And he said, gird your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness Remember Peter earlier in previous weeks, he's already said, I think it was in 2.12, 1 Peter 2.12, where he said, basically, turn from evil, turn from those things, do good, righteousness. Your mind has changed. Put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking the shield of faith, which you will be able to to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation. All of these are defensive weapons. They're protection. These are all to arm you. There's one offensive weapon in the armor of God. And it says, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Like this is our offensive weapon. Then he goes on to say with all prayer and petition, prayed all times in the spirit with that, with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf and utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the boldness of the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains and proclaiming it. I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, going back to first Peter, I wish we, I mean, we could spend a lot of time in the armor of God. I find it interesting that this passage that Peter is challenging us to arm ourselves, arm yourselves with the same purpose. This 
this get serious about your walk with God. This isn't a game we're playing. When we get to verse 7 next week, he's going to mention a bunch of things that how weirdos behave in this culture of ours. We're going to see that we're to arm ourselves with to pray, to love one another, to be hospitable. Watch your mouth, how you speak. I love next week's section. It's probably my favorite in all of Peter, but now we're here where he tells us to arm ourselves. The New American Commentary says this, like soldiers preparing for battle, believers should prepare themselves for suffering. Remember all of Peter, they were living during this unique time in history. Nero was in power and the wrath of, of his was going across his whole kingdom, the known world. Believers were executed for sport. They were burned at the stake to host parties so they could have night lighting. They knew during this time that when they made a profession for Christ, when they went to be baptized, they knew that that decision, that mark, could ultimately lead to their physical death. And the church thrived. And yet today we proclaim the gospel. I don't say we, this church, but in our nation, in particular the West, that Christianity is presented as a very comfortable sort of alternative. We like wealth. We like health. We think of God as our butler when it comes to prayer, answering our prayers. And Peter is waking them up. Arm yourselves, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now this, the wording gets a little confusing. If you have the New American Standard, like I'm reading through, the he's are capitalized differently. I can't remember how the NIV or other fine translations, I, I can't remember how they handled um, the words, but it says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose. So he talked about Christ as the example for suffering on the cross for on our behalf, because he now we're talking about Christians who have because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It just it's confusing. One commentator says this, speaking of the one, because none of us have really truly been broken of sin. Christians are forgiven. We still struggle with sin. But the idea here is that they have been, they have broken with sin because they have ceased to participate in the lawless activities of unbelievers and endured the criticisms that have come from such a decision. The commitment to suffer reveals a passion for a new way of life a life that is not yet perfect, but remarkably different from the lives of unbelievers in the Greco-Roman world. This is a break from your old thinking that when I became a Christian over a course of a, wasn't instantaneous for me, like it was the course of like four years, eventually my whole thinking of how I felt about my sinful world was different. I'd made this constant decision, conscious decision that I no longer am going to follow those things. It didn't mean that I didn't stumble. Man, I stumbled all the time. 
I would have seasons of not drinking, and then I'd fall off the wagon. Then I'd be able to go like three months, and then I'd fall off the wagon, and then I'd go six. Then eventually, it just stopped. I began, became so like riddled with like guilt and conviction when I would stumble. Did it mean I was perfect? Does it mean I'm perfect today? But in my mind, I've changed. I think of that song by Brandon Heath. I love this song. I'm not who I was. When I hear this song on the radio, it almost like brings me to tears. I think, oh man, that's like my life. And there's this one line where he says, I wish you could see me now. I wish I could show you how I am not who I was. And so I stand here today as I've been walking with God. And I don't know where this decision came 15 years ago or like where in that journey. But along the journey, how I think about sin, how I think about these things has changed. And my change of thought has brought friction within my family, has brought friction with the people that I was once dear and close to. And so he says, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It doesn't mean a cease. It means like a lifestyle. That because you're no longer participating in mass of these things, you're not perfect. But because you've made this this mental decision that you don't live that way anymore, suffering's going to come your way. This next section is, I've been wrestling with how to handle this. See, because we're moving into, well, first I just sort of think it's funny. Um, no, I actually have a little bit of time here. So verse two, because he says, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God, this picture of you want to cease those things. Remember back in 2.11 that says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which, which, which wage war on the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. There's this don't stop. I, it was encouraging to me because they're Christians and they're still struggling with the desires of the flesh. And Peter says, stop it. Those things wage war against your soul. They are deadly for, against, for you. Don't do it. Stop giving in to this, the, the same things over and over again. Cease to sin, verse 2, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but the will of God. This word time, it's interesting. We mentioned kairos. We make cookies. We know kairos is cookies. Kairos is appointed time. There are certain opportunities that present themselves that if you miss them, they're gone. I think of time with our kids when they're young. We have a critical time to disciple and train and educate and, and pour into our kids when they're young. And that 18 years or 20 years or 25, like that goes fast. There's a special time and you influence their relationship with God. And I don't think we think about this nearly enough. Now, this word is not Kairos. This word is Kronos. This word literally is how we think of time. So as to live the rest of the time. Peter's writing to these churches in modern day Turkey. These are not people from Jewish background in large part. There were some, of course. These were Gentiles who had converted. Who knows? Maybe they converted it at 40, 50. They had 20, 30 years ahead of them. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. 
So you might have six weeks left. You might have a year left. None of us knows how much time we have left in the future. But Peter challenges Christians, whatever you have, live it for God. Because if you're not living it for God, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your life. You're wasting your opportunity to live for what matters. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. That is hilarious to me. I think of Tom and Fran Stefan. We used to have talks about the struggle over an issue. Like one of them was drinking, I guess it came up. And I always cracked me up with Tom. He says whenever he's kind of being harassed because of his decision to abstain from alcohol and people start teasing him, he says, oh, I already met my quota. And I'm like, that is a great line because, I, yeah, I met my quota. Like I kind of like you've met your quota. Like the time has passed is sufficient for you. And give it back to my notes here. This is, but my notes get confusing because I. Like he says, the time has passed. He lists all of these things. We don't need interpretation. Like this, this is 2000 years ago, guys. People have not changed. Do you guys need me to explain having pursued a course of sensuality? I don't think so. Lust? No. Drunkenness? No. Carousing? No. Drinking parties? No. Abominable idolatries? People haven't changed. He said, you're in Christ now. Your time in the past has... You've already lived that way. Stop going back. And this is where I'm really struggling how to like transition here or or how to, I have a bunch of thoughts that haven't landed neatly on my notes. The, The first thought that jumps out at me is who is writing this letter? It's Peter. Peter is writing Gentiles. They came out of a, a pagan culture, but Peter did not. All of these things that Peter listed are not things that he struggled with personally. If we were to look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, which we're not going to go there, we will see that the apostle Peter calls out the apostle Peter. The apostle Paul calls out the apostle Peter. And he says, I had to challenge Peter to his face. I had to confront him because whenever the Judaizers came, the non-believing Jews came around that thought you earned merit with God by your works. Peter suddenly changes who he is, what he believes. They come around and say, you can't eat this. You can't do this. You have to do this. Peter starts being a chameleon and going along with what they say and condemning the Gentile brethren brothers like the things that peter struggled with were very different from what these people dealt with in romans you get to romans chapter 6 romans chapter 7 i love going through romans and i think that those two sections romans chapter 6 i think addresses the 
the Gentile believers propensity when they go back to the flesh is to fall into these things. Romans chapter seven would be the, the now the religious man who's come to Christ, his propensity going back into the flesh is to fall back into religion. That was way more of Peter's struggle. And so I think it's interesting that Peter's challenging them in this area. It's not an area he struggled with. It doesn't mean that Peter didn't have his own struggles with religion and falling away from grace and turning to religion and works and trying to please God through doing certain things that on the outside looked very religious and very holy. I think that the weirdo sense, as we come to verse 4, in all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them. That's funny that phrase comes from the Bible. Yeah, when they say, don't run with girls who chew, smoke, whatever. <laughs> but this idea of do not run with them, like they're surprised. Gunnar, you used to be one of the biggest partiers with us. You used to be the guy that bought wild turkey shots for all the whole platoon. My nickname was Dirty Bird because of wild turkey. I used to say it because it was not shallow. Like it only took me, like finally I'm comfortable enough to admit this. But suddenly now Gunner is trying to be like walking with God. Sorry guys, I'm not drinking anymore. I'll be happy to be the designated driver. I'll, I'll like drive the platoon wherever you guys want to go. Oh, Gunner, what's up with you, man? Holy roller now. That became my new nickname because of the bowling alley in Bahrain. We did a lot of bowling. So I moved from Dirty Bird to Holy Roller, which I liked much better. But you'll see that it moves from surprise to maligning. It was sort of surprise at first, but then as it kept going and as the whole, this whole Christian thing really took root and I really held course, there were some strained relationships. There, there were times when people felt as though I was judging them, but I wasn't judging them. I was just had my own conviction and my own garbage that I'm trying to work through. Whatever they did, they did. That was fine. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I have the verse up there, 9 through 12, you'll see that the Bible doesn't call us to judge non-Christians. We are not at all to judge non-Christians. We are to judge within the body of Christ. We're to hold each other accountable but why would we expect non-Christians to act like Christians? What they need is Christ. And we want to, as Christians, we get fall into this trap of we want to legislate everything so that everybody behaves like Christians when they're not Christians. To the young people who grew up in the church, I want to give a warning about this. Don't, don't read this as a permission slip. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to care. Whoa, 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 whoa. Tom read out his quota. That means that I have a quota. That, that means that I can go do my own thing. There, we, we showed this movie the other week. Beforehand, we showed Tim Hawkins. Is that his name, Tim Hawkins? Yeah, I'm thinking of Steve. What is Steve? Never mind. Tim Hawkins, the comedian. And there's one scene in there where he's making fun of the, the, what he calls the rock star conversions about people who were like totally um, messed up lives and they come to Christ. And, and he's like, man, I was growing up and I was, by 14, I was thinking, man, I need to go like, go do a bunch of crack and cocaine and go mess up my life so that I can have a cool testimony. 
Anna always looks at me. This is like a big, she's like, yeah, you have the rock star testimony and I have like the non rock star testimony. That's absolutely not the truth. I look at, at those who have the blessing of being born into a Christian home, that they're raised with values, that they're not saved out of these things, but they're saved from these things. That's way more miraculous in my mind. I, I wish I had that. I've lost so much ground because of the years that I've wasted. You don't need to drink a bottle of poison to learn that it actually is poisonous. And so to the young people, I'd encourage you to count it a blessing that you're being raised in a Christian home, to walk the walk, to go the distance, for us parents to pray for our kids. I pray for my kids every night that they would walk with God as an early age, that they would not detour from the path. He goes on to say in verse 4, in all of this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and malign you. There's a tension between the way one who knows Christ, who walks with Christ, who follows after him, the way the believer thinks, the, the way the believer who is studying the scriptures and allowing the scriptures to convict and to change and to alter how you think about things, it creates friction with the world. The struggle here in this that I don't want to gloss over, I think in our world where most of Americans identify as being Christians, like I said earlier, there are many who take the name Christ who I don't believe are actually Christians. There are Christians who maybe made a profession who have the fire insurance that will proclaim the gospel and their belief in it, but then there's actually the way they behave is just like the world. We have churches that pride themselves on advertising that we're no different than you. We look the same. We act the same. And I'm thinking, why would I waste my time going on? My, like, why would I give up my Sunday morning? If there's, I would also caution us that sometimes in our culture, the friction, the weirdness it may come from family who takes the name Christ. It may be a friend who claims to be Christian. I hear people all say, oh, I'm with this. I met this guy or I have this friend. It's okay. They're Christian. Well, what does that mean? What does their life look like? Oh, well, they gossip. They slander. They speak cruelly about other people. They, they go to the bars. They really don't even like Christians. Jesus didn't like Christians. Jesus hung out with all the sinners. No, Jesus hung out with everybody, guys. He, hang out, he hung out with Pharisees and sinners. He hung out with all people. And so I would caution. See, in my own life, I've seen that when I came to Christ, my thinking differently, it, it, it drew me away from some people that I, I could not be around. They were my kryptonite. If I was around them, I would go, fall back into my old ways. Now, 15 years later, these people are dear friends to me. I'm no longer being influenced by them, that I can be in relationship with them 
but not be influenced by them, that my desire is to be the influence on them. And that's my question. Who's influencing you? What sort of influence are people having on you? Are your Christian friends promoting you, guiding you, helping you grow stronger in your relationship with the Lord? Or do you carry the name Christian yet? Really, you're no different than the world. I told you this could get uncomfortable. This is where I should have written on my paper, smile. <laughs> you know, I hear said often that the church it, it doesn't exist for its members. And I don't know that I agree with that. See, our church, we exist to bring glory to God, to make him known that we want to honor and worship him. We seek to please him. We seek to make his will known. That's why we teach the scriptures. We want to make disciples of all nations. We want to strengthen our walk with him. We want to equip ourselves. That's why we have a Sunday school class back there that we have these multiple opportunities, small groups, opportunities to grow and nurture your walk with God trips to Mexico to strengthen your faith, to step out, see what God is doing, put things in perspective. That doesn't mean that we don't want to have true, genuine relationships and friendships with the world. That doesn't mean that we don't want our unsaved friends, whoever they are, to feel welcomed in our church. Absolutely, we want to be hospitable. We want to reach out to them. We, our hearts break for them. We are sinners that have been saved by grace, and we just want to share the lifeline that we've been given. But the thing is, the world won't control our message or won't guide our message this is where we look to, to God, his scriptures. What, did he, what does he say that we exist for? And so I think that when I read this verse, it's uh, in all this, they are surprised that you don't run with them in the same ex excesses of dissipate, uh, dissipation and they malign you. I think we're quick to say, well, there are non-Christians and there are Christians. But the reality is, is I think we need to really think, examine our friendships, our relationships, family, non-family, friends, peers. Because I've seen it, that those who carry the name Christ will malign those who try to live like Christ commands us. And that happens more frequently in our very Christian culture. Friction will come. Then verse 5, this very sobering verse, which I'm going to sort of skim over and come back to. It says, but they, those Gentiles, those non-believers, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That is sobering. For those who have trusted in Christ, our judgment stands in the past. We will give an account, a different judgment, but that's more of a measurement. Uh, uh, what did you do with what you were given, the gifts, the, the resources, the talents? How did you manage what God has entrusted you to manage? And I don't think it's going to be a, a, a pity party beating you up. I think it's going to be an attaboy. But he makes it clear that those who don't know Christ, they will give an account to him who's ready to judge. Verse 6, for the gospel has for this purpose 
been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Again, this is another one that can be a little bit confusing. But what it's saying here, for the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead. He's not saying that those who have died and are in heaven, in hell or in wherever, that there's not this proclaiming of the gospel posthumously, meaning after you've died. The early church, they were suffering casualties on a daily basis. People were being executed over and over and over again for proclaiming faith in Christ. They had great questions. If you go to Thessalonians and read this, what about our brothers and sisters in Christ who have died? What about them? And Peter says, for this purpose, the gospel has been preached even to those who are dead. Those who have died, who have known Christ, that though they are judged in the flesh, meaning that they were executed, they were killed, they died in the flesh. They may now live in the spirit according to the will of God, that they're with Jesus. If you go to 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 in that area, that there's great assurance. There's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, to be absent in the, from the body is to be present with the Lord. He's saying those believers that have died, they are with Jesus. They're free from their sinful bodies. And as we close, I just want to end. This verse 5 is troubling. If you take this for what it says, which is very clear, they who are apart from Christ will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This should break our hearts as Christians. This should drive us to want to establish true, genuine relationships that would, would drive us to want to help people come to know Christ. This is why we as a church are so committed financially to our missionaries to help them serve around the world. This is why we as a church want to reach out to our community, to our neighbors, to our friends. And if you're here and you've not accepted Christ, I would encourage you to give strong thought to what the Bible says about the gospel. If we go to 2 Peter 3, 9... We read, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. The whole context here in this passage is speaking about the judgment. He's saying there will be non-believers who are mocking. Well, Jesus has died 2,000 years ago. Where is this judgment? Where is it? It's not going to happen. You guys are foolish. And Peter says, God's not slow about this. But he's patient towards you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That the only reason that Jesus hasn't come back, we're told from the scriptures, is that God is so patient and so desiring that people come to faith that he's continually trying to reach out. And so I'd encourage you to do whatever you have to do, wrestle with God, figure out, do your homework. What, what, what's the evidence? Ben and I are more than happy to help answer questions. I think questions are good. I don't like the whole blind faith. I think that there's overwhelming evidence to place your faith upon. Two weeks ago or so, I um, 
I did this conference. I was asked to speak to law enforcement, and it was really convicting as a speaker. Like, I really hated the last, like, six months or so that I knew it was coming, and I really didn't like the title of the conference. I was really trying to, like, change it, but, you know, my vote and $2 will not even get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks anymore. And, but they named the conference the Probable Cause Conference, and what they were trying to do is for law enforcement officers, you know, probable cause. This is an officer in order to stop somebody, to arrest somebody. They need probable cause. And so the idea was that these officers that helped promote it, that they've seen so many officers that took the name Christ, but there was no evidence that they were living for Christ. And so the whole point of the conference was to help encourage them in their walk with God. It's terribly convicting. Like, is there a probable cause in your life if your life was to be examined? And this isn't to make you feel, this is like for us to, to, to really consider. Like, what is Lord of your life? Is it your family? Is it your pocketbook? Is it your, like, what, or is it Christ? And if Christ is Lord of your life, how does that work itself out? And there's no sinless person. I'm not trying like, but for the person who walks with Christ, what happens is our sin drops us to our knees, that we become sensitive to our sinfulness. Like the longer I walk with God, the, the like I, my outside might be cleaned up, but man, there is still like that war within me. And I am not perfect and nobody's perfect. Billy Graham is not perfect. But as we walk with God, as his spirit has his way in our life, our sin becomes just vile to us. And we fall to our knees and we have the great hope of 1 John 1, 9 through 10 that says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But this is a call to arm yourselves. You're going to be a weirdo in this world if you follow Christ. And next week, we're going to learn how the weirdo is supposed to live, which is way more fun than today. (laughs) And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you, Lord, for this day. We, Father, this passage is just terribly convicting to me. Lord, we thank you for conviction. We thank you for the spirit that dwells within us. Lord, we pray that, um, that we would stay sensitive to you. Lord, we know that all through the scriptures, it warns of our conscience becoming seared. And so, Lord, I fear that as we take the name Christ and live according to the world and we do things that you've warned us about, have attitudes and mindsets and feelings about the way we do things, Lord, that our conscience begins to sear as a piece of steak on the grill. And so, Lord, we don't want to have seared consciences. We want to hear your voice. We want to sense your leading. We want to be convicted for our sin. We thank you that as a father disciplines his children, you discipline us, that you guide us in love, not out of harshness, Lord, but guiding us because your way is the best way and your way is where true happiness true peace, true freedom is found. And so, Father, I pray for those that are hearing this message, Lord, that maybe don't know you. 
Lord, I pray that you would guard them from thinking that the Christian life is a bunch of do's and don'ts. We thank you, Lord, that on the cross, Jesus paid it all. We simply come by faith. We thank you that salvation is a gift, nothing we can earn. We thank you that it was done completely for us. Father, for those of us who have responded to the gospel, who call Jesus Lord, Lord, I pray that you would help us to get serious about our walk with you. Lord, our flesh is so strong, and at times it seems it's a losing battle, and we are helpless in our own strength. And so, Father, I pray for each one here that walks with you, that calls you Lord, that you would strengthen them. Lord, I pray that you would help them to arm themselves. Lord, help us to brace for the storm. Help us not to care about being different from the world. Lord, help us to live our lives for an audience of one that's you. Father, we thank you that there's hope in Christ. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.